Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellero, and this week my guest is Mike Bombick of Bombick Software. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. You have been on the show you before you were show number 50. I forget what that was. I think it was in late 2016. And we talked about your career and carbon copy cloner and snapshots and stuff. But for the listeners who maybe have missed that older show, I want to give you a brief introduction. You are the founder and president of Bombic Software, the developer of Carbon Copy Cloner. That's a backup app for the Mac that has saved the day for many users. And you're a former Apple employee. Yes. What did you do at Apple, just as a recap here before we get started into the meat? Yeah, sure. I was a systems engineer. I was in the, the field engineering group, and we basically put together solutions for uh, higher education customers. Uh, I was part of things like the 700-something unit cluster deal that went into the University of uh, Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and uh, we put together all sorts of, of big deals and solutions like that. Was that an XSERF cluster? Yes. How did a you supercomputer. T- how did you yeah. tie it all together? Was it uh, with InfiniBand or, or something like that? Uh, yeah, it wasn't InfiniBand. It was something like that, though. Fiber optic. Ah, okay, cool. Pretty neat, I think. Uh, what year was that? Oh, 2008, maybe? 2007? Okay. Something like that, yeah. From 2000 to 2005, big into supercomputers, the Virginia Tech thing. Yeah. Yeah. Got it all started. That was an exciting time when Apple was dabbling with supercomputers and clusters. Yeah, it was also a very different time. Uh, Apple is it's a completely different company, it seems, now. Well, I wrote an article the other day about how I think the Mac Pro is sort of signaling Apple's desire to be more involved in the technical scientific community. And boy, is that a machine to do that. It's beefy, for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, tell me, how did Carbon Copy Cloner come to be? I think it happened during your Apple years, right? It actually came right before I joined Apple. Uh, I've been doing this for about 17 years now. And uh, it was briefly before I joined Apple. In fact, it's kind of what got Apple's attention. And uh, then I was with Apple for eight years. And uh, I have now been outside of Apple for a little bit longer than eight years. So we've really been at this quite a long time. Carbon Copy Cloner is a glorious product. I use it all the time, and uh, all of us on the Mac Observer team do, I think. Um, so Apple has introduced something new in Catalina that uh, we're just starting to learn about. I wrote an article about it the other day, about as much as I knew about it. And basically, uh, Apple's splitting out the operating system into its own read-only space or volume. Can you give us a sort of an overview of that, and then we'll get into some of the details? Yeah, sure. And actually, if you look at older Linux uh, builds, this is kind of the way the operating system worked on Linux and Unix for a really long time. There were specific volumes that had specific roles. You'd have like a system volume, a virtual memory volume, a user data volume. And so this goes back really a very long way. And actually, even on Apple's platform... Uh, it goes back all the way to macOS 10 Lion. Uh, when Apple introduced Lion, they introduced a new recovery volume, and that was basically just this hidden volume that was adjacent to the startup disk that had a, a specific purpose 
that was independent of the main operating system. Uh, and it kind of stayed that way, just the one additional um, volume until macOS High Sierra came along. And that's when Apple introduced the ability to boot from APFS volumes. And at that time, Apple introduced uh, two more volume roles, uh, the pre-boot volume and the virtual memory volume. So uh, starting in High Sierra, we now have four volumes within that APFS container. We've got the pre-boot, the recovery, the virtual memory, and then the one that you actually see, the main system volume. Does Garvin Copy Cloner back up all of those? Yes, seamlessly. You don't even notice it. Um, yeah, I guess if you're paying enough attention, you could actually notice it. Uh, but yeah, so the, the, the pre-boot and the recovery volumes are uh, really lightweight little volumes. The pre-boot volume has about 50 megabytes of content on it. And CCC will create an archive of that and then back up the archive. And then if your destination is an APFS volume, it will automatically create that pre-boot volume and populate it with the content. And then likewise, it does that for the recovery volume. So we'll create an archive, back it up, and then create and populate a recovery volume on the destination. The virtual memory volume, I don't really do anything with it because uh, macOS automatically creates that one on startup. So what is the virtual it. memory volume for? I have not heard of that. Yeah, so there's actually privacy concerns and security concerns with virtual memory. So um, there's the potential that some attacker could uh, pollute the memory or alter it or something like that. So um, Apple makes it a little bit more secure just by placing it into a separate volume. Uh, it also can take up a lot of space. Um, if you've got some application running amok or you just happen to use uh, memory-intensive applications, you could be creating you know, dozens or hundreds of gigabytes worth of virtual memory. So just by having it in a separate volume uh, just allows Apple to manage it a little bit differently from the rest of the operating system. Is this a way to keep a virtual memory application from overstepping its permissions in memory? Uh, I don't know if Apple uses the volume specifically for that purpose. Mm. Just not sure. Okay. All right. So um, you said you saw this coming in recent TechNote. Uh, there's something about APFS <laughs> that kind of avoided your appetite for how this might be coming. Yeah, so almost immediately uh, when Apple introduced APFS and the whole concept of the container, uh, it, it seemed almost too obvious that you could easily create multiple volumes within the container and set aside uh, one particular volume within that container for the system. And I always thought it would be really neat if they basically just took one volume and put the whole system on it and that was just a dedicated system volume. And it even occurred to me that it could be read-only. Um, I actually anticipated and kind of feared that Apple would lock it down and make it so that you couldn't really even see it at all or, you know, copy it, heaven forbid. Uh, but that's not really the direction they're going. Um, so I, I did see it coming. And actually, we've kind of been building into CCC uh, the ability to work with these uh, special purpose volumes. And actually, as far as Catalina is concerned, um, in Catalina, we now have a whole bunch of new uh, volume types that can be created within APFS. And the system volume is basically just like the pre-boot volume or the recovery volume. It's a special purpose volume. And we've already got some infrastructure in place for dealing with those. So uh, it hasn't been too much work so far to uh, to adapt to that aspect of, of copying the system volume. 
I've seen references in, in your tech note and also at Electric, Eclectic Light Company about two boot volumes integrating and functioning as one. Can you shed some light on that for me? Yeah, sure. So the, the biggest new concept in Catalina is this concept of a volume group. And the way that that works, so first of all, when you uh, upgrade to Catalina, your current single volume startup disk is renamed. So let's suppose it's named Macintosh HD. The installer will rename that to Macintosh HD-data. Uh, it then changes the role of that volume to be a data volume. And the next thing that it does is it just deletes uh, a certain subset of system components from that volume. And then it also creates a new oh, system wait, volume. Wait, 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 wait. What, what is it deleting? I'm sorry. The installer process is just deleting the system components that were installed by Apple. Oh, okay. So the Mac OS. So we're basically just stripping some of the system components off of this now deemed a data volume. Uh, and then finally, we add a system volume. The, the installer adds a system volume. And at the same time that it adds that system volume, it creates a group. It groups it together with the data volume. And that's not, it's not like a real structure. It's not like a container. It's not like a volume. It's just kind of a concept. These two, um, these two volumes are just put together into a, into a group. What's the, tell me again what's logically different about the two volumes because they're referred to as two boat volumes, which could be a lot, which could be very confusing. <laughs> it is confusing. Okay, sure. So it's actually just one, but one boot volume. You've got oh, that okay. system volume, and that's the the volume that you're actually booting from. But on startup, when the kernel detects that that um, the startup disk is a system volume within a volume group, it says, "Oh, hey, this is a volume group." I also need to mount the data volume because the system volume can't really function wholly as a system volume without also attaching that data volume. Now, so now on, give me some color on what the data volume is. This is not the user's, right? This is the system's own data? This is actually your data as well. So oh. um, if you can think, think of it kind of like a shadow. Uh, so you've got the system volume that's completely read-only, and any time that you need as a user or as an application – if you need to write to the system volume, those writes don't actually go to the system volume. They go to its shadow, which is the data volume. Oh, and this is accomplished with something I think is called firm links? Yes, firm links, precisely between a soft link and a hard link. Next question. Yes. <laughs> Tell us what a soft link is, a hard link, a symbolic link, and a firm link. Yeah, so a soft <laughs> link and symbolic links are actually the same thing. And... Um, knowing what the soft link is and the hard link is actually doesn't get you any closer to figuring out what a firm link is. Okay. Yeah. So uh, there's about uh, two dozen firm links that are created uh, by the installation process on the startup disk. And you can actually find a list of these um, on the startup disk in Catalina it's at user share firm links. And basically it's just a, uh, a recipe for a source and a destination folder. So for example, the users folder on the system volume, there is actually a users folder on the system volume, but that's a firm link. And what a firm link is, firm link is, is a, Apple calls it a bi-directional wormhole uh, between <laughs> two file systems. <laughs> and what that means is if you start out at the, uh, the root of the system volume and you go into the users folder, it automatically transports you into the users folder of the data volume. 
seamlessly. You can't even tell you've gone from one volume to another. Uh, so likewise, if you're somewhere within the, the user's folder in the, the data volume, suppose you're looking at something on your desktop, and then you go back up the file system tree and get to the root, uh, you don't go to the root of the data volume. Instead, you go back to the root of the system volume. So it it sounds kind of complicated. When you look at it in the finder, though, basically you're just going to see your ordinary system volume, and it's going to look and feel just like a, a writable volume. It'll look exactly the same. And it's kind of neat the way that Apple pulled this off. And uh, they kind of had to do it this way because, you know, with a one-year release cycle, you can only break so many things yeah. from one release to another. So you've got so many people relying on, on these for production use. Uh, they really had to pull this off without breaking a whole bunch of stuff. So, Well, I have some more questions, but it's time for a quick break. Folks, I'm chatting with the president and founder of Bombic Software, Mike Bombic, a creative carbon copy cloner. We'll be back in 60 seconds after this commercial break. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with Mike Bombick. So I don't know if this is an intelligent question or not, but it's something that uh, occurred to me. The operating system has its own plist files, I guess, that determine its behavior and, and performance. Uh, things like screenshot file format, maybe, and other things like that. So how does the operating system deal with these preference files that need to be maybe changed if it's a read-only system? Just yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really good question. Um, there, there's a preferences hierarchy, and default preferences can be set uh, either at the application level, at the system level, uh, or at the user level. So if, uh, say, you open up an application and uh, the application will have its own set of defaults. But then when you change one of your own preferences, your preference within the, the user realm will override the preference that is set at the higher level. So if you had a preference for the format for screenshots, for example, that would override whatever system default there is thanks to that preferences hierarchy. Uh, okay, so you're never really changing the default of the system. You're just simply letting the system do its default thing, and if there's a necessary change, then the user level makes it happen. Right. Oh, okay. Well, that answers that question. Um, all right. So, um, so we covered the bidirectional firm link, the issue of why it seems like there's two boot volumes. I don't think I really understand that, but you're doing a chart that's going to explain... Yeah, so I think what's going to be helpful for people, instead of thinking of, of having two volumes, 
think of it as a volume group. I have a, a volume group and that's my startup disk. And that's actually something that we have embraced within CCC uh, when dealing with these volumes. Um, Apple is really pushing the concept of this volume group uh, from the system perspective. And we really have to embrace it to make it make sense. Well, you mentioned before we took the break that it's possible that Apple was trying to stitch this together without making too many problems in, in the one year between WWDCs. Does the structure of this system, I'm really fishing here now, does the structure of this system suggest to you that there is a phase two where they maybe make a, another change that kind of makes the system more elegant but doesn't risk upsetting the system in the way it is now? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's certainly a lot of different ways that they could do this. Um, I think the concept of the firm link, uh, especially to the more technical user, is almost a little confusing. And certainly anybody who sees the two volumes, say, in disk utility, they're going to kind of wonder what they are. Uh, I think in a perfect world, there would be just one volume for the system, and there would be 100% complete separation between the data volume and the system volume. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Apple is actually working towards that, uh, but it does seem like that would be a little bit cleaner to have just complete separation between the two. And certainly, this is something that a lot of people have been working for for many years. I mean, raise your hand if you've got your home directory on a separate partition. And the reason that we do this is we want to be able to do the nuke and pave. If mm. you know something goes wrong with the operating system or we want to upgrade with, with less risk, you want to have the operating system just on a completely separate volume and all of your stuff on a separate volume. So I, I don't know if Apple's going to try and make a complete separation in the future, but it certainly seems like they that will maybe be eventually could. What you just described and what some people do, I know Jeff Gamut does that, um, former Mac Observer managing editor. Um, is that going to be impossible now because of the elegance of this uh, group volume group? I wouldn't say that it's going to be impossible, but it's it's certainly going to be less necessary. Yeah. Um, and you've already got the separate system volume. And actually, there is um, one interesting thing that I discovered about that system volume uh, when I applied the, the beta 2 update from Apple. Um, it's kind of like a disposable volume. Uh, what happened is uh, when I went to install the update, the installer created a new volume, uh, and I believe it was an update volume, uh, installed all the components into there, and then it actually de deleted the original system volume. Um, and I could tell that because I use a unique identifier to track um, my source and destination volumes, and I saw that the unique identifier had changed. So that that just kind of goes to show you that you know we've got quite a bit of separation now between the system and the data volume. So if if all you're looking for is that kind of separation, uh, then maybe the people who are using home folders on separate volumes could consider not doing that anymore because it's, it's just not as necessary as it used to be. Okay. So how does all of this inf impact carbon copy cloner? You wrote a note recently. So tell us what the impact is for those of us who are using, especially those of us who have a few carbon copy cloner external disks still formatted as HFS plus. Yeah. So it's, it's actually huge for us. Um, in fact, I would say this is one of the biggest changes that we've seen to the operating system since we've started doing this. 
uh, you know, the, the whole booting from APFS was also a very significant change. But this one is equally as large, if not even just a little bit larger. Um, but the impact for us eventually, we're going to make it as seamless as possible. Um, we're going to do things like convert the uh, HFS destination volumes automatically to APFS. I assume there'll um, be a warning like, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, yeah. Do you really want oh, yeah. me to do it? Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not, I'm not going to force APFS down anybody's throat. That's <laughs> Apple's job. Um, uh, but, you know, if you want to make a bootable backup of Catalina, you certainly will have to use, have to have APFS at the destination. And we'll make that very clear up front. We'll offer alternatives if that's not what you want to do. And uh, we'll also do it for you so that it's not something you have to go out of your way to do. Uh, but then, you know, we've got a long list of things to do. Like uh, we had to figure out how to copy both the system and the data volumes at the same time, create that structure, create the group. And then, you know, there's a litany of other things like uh, we want to start treating volume groups as volume groups. So wherever we have functionality to mount a volume, uh, we're going to want to mount a volume group. Um, we have to deal with encryption. Um Encryption is kind of an, a neat uh, subject within APFS volume groups. Um, when you encrypt the volume, you're encrypting. So when you enable File Vault, you're encrypting the volume group, uh, and you're encrypting both volumes. So the same password that unlocks one will unlock the other. Um, but you know, every time we needed to unlock a volume in the past, it was just one volume, and now it's two. So that's another task we have to take on. I don't want to pry. Uh, I don't want to pry about product plans, but let me just ask: Is this going to still be a upgrade to version five, or are you thinking it's going to be a version six and an uh, upgrade cost? This will be an update to version five. Cool. Yeah, that's that's an easy one. All right. Um, you know, and I I should just state right up front: we never aim to make you know working with the next operating system something that people pay for in an upgrade. For me. Uh, when we upgrade our product, we add our own new features. I've got lots of stuff that I'm, you know, Peter and I have been working on for years and years and years that make the product better and make it do more things. Um, the fact that it just, it also makes a bootable backup on Catalina. It also makes a bootable backup on that next OS. Uh, you know, that's, that's like the root of our product. But when I'm asking people to pay for upgrades, um, that's not what I'm asking them to pay for. Excellent. Good to know. All right, I have one final question. I've kind of lost track recently about Time Machine. There was an article by Glenn Fleischman a while back about how in Mojave you still had to have your Time Machine formatted as HFS Plus because Time Machine used hard links and wasn't ready to migrate. Has that changed? Can you give us an update? I don't know if it's any different. Um, when I took a look at it in the early betas of Catalina, it looked like it was still the same. But it does look like there's some other Time Machine-specific functionality that's kind of cooking in the oven. I just can't tell where Apple's going with it. So the bottom line is the carbon copy clone or external drives will have to be IPFS, but Time Machine drives haven't made the leap. Is that a good way to say it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, how much people would choose one solution over the other just based upon whether or not it requires HFS or APFS. Um, you know, we've certainly tried to maintain flexibility for a long time. Um, whether or not Time Machine will, will finally support APFS, I'm not sure. But certainly a lot of Time of Machine functionality 
uh, already leverages APFS. For example, uh, when you enable Snapchat. Time Machine, yes, on your um, on your system, it will create snapshots of any APFS volumes, uh, and we do the same. But that's um, internal. That's snapshots on your internal APFS drive, right? Uh, or or external APFS drives. Time Machine would would create snapshots on all of them unless you specifically excluded them from from the backup. Um, and of course, we can do the same, and we leverage the same file system device. Uh, the difference is that Time Machine automatically deletes its snapshots after 24 hours. So I see Time Machine really is a is a very basic, um, very basic kind of backup. Oh yeah, I uh, recommend to the covered. listeners that you use multiple methods. Yeah. So I mean, and what I like that Apple's doing with Time Machine is that the average user can get basic. Um, coverage for 24 hours uh, with Time Machine. Um, obviously, they're not automatically getting uh, hardware redundancy um, unless they purchase the hard drive. Uh, but with Time Machine enabled, you automatically get snapshots for the last 24 hours, and that gives you some modicum of protection. Yeah. Uh, but for anybody who uses their computer for production stuff, uh, obviously, you want to take the next step. Obviously, yep, yep. Okay, so is there anything that you, we should have mentioned in this discussion that I did not ask you? Hmm. hmm. So I'm, my questions were rather simple, and I'm sure I didn't cover all the details. Uh, no, I, I feel like we've kind of covered everything. Um, one of the one of the other things that I'm working on as part of our uh, our Catalina work is documentation. Um, I spend a lot of time on documentation. Um, and that's actually something I've been working on this week. Uh, so I think once this podcast airs, we should have some documentation that we can share that, that can kind of help people wrap their heads around some of these changes. All right. Uh, in fact, I've got a graphic I'm looking at right now cool. that I think makes a lot of this stuff make more sense. Oh, I can't wait to see the graphic. That'll really clear it up for me. I'll put that in the show notes. Send me the link. Okay. Okay. All right. So thank you for joining me. This has been an excellent discussion. Very timely very technical, but I think you explained it beautifully. So thank you for joining me to clarify all of this. Sure. Thanks for having me on the show. Folks, you've been listening. Oh, one more thing. Uh, tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. If you'd like to contact me, you can reach me at bombic.com, B-O-M-B-I-C-H.com, or carboncopycloner.com. All right. Okay. So folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with John Marcellaro and Mike Bombic. We'll see you again next week.